Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Recognizing what we have done in the past can give us enormous strength for the future too, to deal with new challenges. But actually, if you're feeling anxious, consciously trying to suppress the feeling isn't really possible. And the research shows that actually it rebounds. You actually feel worse. You know, I see mindset as being crucial for this, but I think also it is a a process of slowly pushing yourself against your comfort zone and, and, you know, expanding it. If you're not feeling a certain level of frustration, you're probably not actually pushing your brain as hard as it can go. Thank you for joining me today on episode 51 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome David Robson. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the supporters of the show. We have now been downloaded in 97 countries. Please also check out the YouTube channel, which has over 200 short clips on topics such as job search, communication, mindset, and neuroscience. For any new listeners, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. David is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. After graduating with a degree in mathematics from Cambridge University, he worked as a features editor at New Scientist for five years before moving to BBC Future, where he was a senior journalist for five years. In the past couple of years, David has received multiple awards for his writing. His first book, The Intelligence Trap, was published in 2019 and received worldwide media attention. His second, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life, was published last year and is the winner of the 2022 BPS Book Awards. Welcome, David. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a lovely introduction. (laughs) Well, it's all true. And and, and it's it's funny, David, my guests always say, oh, that, yeah, thanks for the introduction. But yeah, clearly, this is a factual thing. It's not as if I'm making this stuff up. But I also think it's quite nice um, for ourselves to almost go back over our achievements and say, you know, pat yourself on the back. Because I think so much of of life, people are trying to do you down and say you're not good. And especially, I think, in the sort of creative media, you're trying to establish a brand and stand out from the crowd. So I I think it's important to celebrate our achievements. I mean, what, what do you think, David? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And actually, you know, we'll come on to this later. But I think, you know, a lot of what the research on mindset tells us actually is that, you know, just recognizing kind of what we have done in the past can give us, you know, enormous strength for the future too, to deal with new challenges. Cool. So I'm I'm a big fan of the arts. So is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share with our listeners today, David? I mean, so many, you know, as a child of the 80s, Kate Bush would be, you know, the singer songwriter that I most respect. I just think she's got this amazing creativity. So yeah, if there was one body of work that I could take on a desert island, it would be her albums. Oh, cool. There are two Kate Bush tracks, which I really like. And they're both relatively not that well known. Um, This Woman's Work, 
Um, I, I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. that song. And then uh, them heavy people, which I think yeah. I think it was big in Japan or something, but for some reason wasn't big here. And it's strange how there are these songs which you think, wow, they should have a much bigger following, but for whatever reason, the timing or it just doesn't click with the zeitgeist. What, what do you think, David? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, Kate Bush deep cuts, I would say, you know, not well known because uh, they weren't hit singles. But yeah, they're amazing tracks. And I do think it kind of shows the richness of her work, actually, the fact that there are so many, you know, relatively undiscovered songs that people can still come to and identify with. Cool. So it's funny, I hadn't come across you until I was doing some research for an interview with Professor Sarah Garfinkel, who specialises in in interception. And I saw an excellent article that you had written for The Guardian, and I really liked it. And then I thought, well, let's reach out to David. Um, Yeah, he he seemed like a good guy. Um, And obviously, you're a well-known author, so you could easily have ignored my um, invitation. But here we are. And I think it just shows that we're much closer to people than we realize. And I think going on to the expectation effect, I think you could either view um, reaching out to people as uh, it's not going to work. Or you could say, well, why don't you try and and see what happens? Yeah, no, I very much agree with that. And actually, my next book is going to look at that, um, the kind of social impact of our expectations much more closely. And like you say, a lot of the time we put up barriers around ourselves that don't need to be there. And people are much more accessible, much more, you know, much happier to get to know you than you might think. And and I think if you're trying to um, add value and not just say, David, can you give plug my book or something like that? You know, if you just ask for a small thing and you can hopefully add value to the other person, then people are very e- uh, willing to interact. So like getting back to the start, you studied maths at Cambridge. Um, and when I was at school, David, um, I always really respected the mathematicians <laughs> because, I mean, I, I like maths. I did maths, physics and chemistry at A-level, like a lot of people. Um, and I quite like the arts. But I think there was, you know, I knew my level, uh, but I knew the really good guys and, and girls in maths were just so much better than me. So obviously huge respect, not just for doing maths, but doing it at Cambridge, which is obviously a hugely prestigious thing. So what was the motivation for studying maths? With maths, I had quite an interesting journey, really. You know, I wasn't the best person at my school at maths when I first started in year seven. I actually really struggled, I think, with that move to thinking more abstractly. So I actually, looking back, now I know about the psychology, I really think it was evidence of a growth mindset in that I didn't think I was great, but I kind of thought I could improve. And my teacher was really good at just kind of giving us that kind of faith that, you know, if you put in the work, you'll get better. Like you might not be an amazing mathematician, but you will master these concepts. And so that's what I did. And it was like, you know, over years, actually, until eventually I did kind of, you know, come the highest in my school and then decided that I would apply to Cambridge and got in and, you know, really enjoyed my degree. My interest in maths came also from my interest in uh, science, which was always important. Uh, maths was this kind of universal language that could be applied to understand all kinds of sciences. So, you know, you can use mathematics, obviously, in theoretical physics, but also it's so hugely important in medicine and interpreting, you know, uh, the results of different studies and modelling, you know, the outcomes of a pandemic, all of these things. So it's really, that was where the interest came from. I'm intrigued um, with your mathematical background. Why did you move into journalism? Because clearly you could have made a load of money in the city working in a bank or hedge fund. 
I'm not sure I would have had the right skills to do well in the city. Um, and I think partly it was that I didn't have that hunger. Like, I'm not especially motivated by money, not that I'm saying it's not important, yes. but um, it wasn't really where my passion lie. And, and I'd always enjoyed writing and I'd, you know, loved doing my English GCSE and I continued reading, I continued kind of doing creative writing into university. And then I just realised that I could combine my two passions, essentially, which was, you know, understanding science and then communicating and finding the, you know, most exciting way possible to describe what was going on in the world of science. And, you know, it's been just as good, even better than I would have expected. You know, I'm learning something new every day. I still get the opportunity to, you know, delve really deeply into these topics and to really wrestle with the the evidence. One thing that people always said to me when I was doing my maths degree was, oh, it's um, it must be nice because there's always a right or a wrong answer. <laughs> and actually, you know, while that's kind of superficially true, even with my degree, it wasn't the case that you kind of, you know, you're doing sums all day. Actually, with my career, I think it's even more nuanced. You know, often there's a whole range of, of kind of evidence that you're analysing and trying to see a path through that. And then you're trying to present like a compelling narrative that will get people hooked into the story while still remaining true to all of those nuances. And that's what I find most rewarding. So, so do you think eventually, given your love of writing and the science side, any thoughts about writing a novel, David? You know, I would love to, but I really haven't, you know, practiced that side of things for quite a while. Um, if I did, I don't think it would be like hard sci-fi like I much prefer the work of people like uh, Samantha Schweblin um, where it's like the you have a concept there it's kind of informed by science but it's not necessarily like that's not the overriding factor and it's still based on looking at human interactions and that's really the kind of things that I enjoy reading and then I would probably enjoy writing too. Cool. No, I'm a big sci-fi fan. And my big thing is like time travel, you know, mm, yeah, possible. Yeah. And then, you know, can, can you go forward? Can you go back? Determinism versus free will. I just find it completely fascinating. And it's almost as if, you know, on one level, they're saying everything that has happened has happened. So we don't have free will. And it just almost blows your mind in a way. So yeah, just find those concepts fascinating. Mm, yeah, me too. I love a, a novel with a big idea like that. So you worked for a number of years for obviously the New Scientist and, and then BBC Future. So what made you leave the corporate world and how has the transition been to a, a full-time author? The transition happened kind of slowly and it was partly a result of having written my first book. You know, I took the time off um, to write that and then I really wanted to write a second one. And I realised that it's too difficult really to juggle both. Like I couldn't ask for like a second <laughs> sabbatical. But actually, I think also like there is something in the kind of institution of journalism like the system that means that it's really difficult for you to kind of be promoted kind of creative uh, creatively I think essentially you're always looking to kind of be eventually placed into management positions when you are promoted and again that just wasn't something that really would have made me excited about going to work each day I could imagine I'd have that horrible Sunday evening feeling if I was were to have gone down that route so actually this was a way I think of me progressing in my career and taking on new challenges but without necessarily having to sacrifice my creativity and actually you know in a way like I feel like with my books all I've done is taken on kind of bigger creative challenges and the more I've done that the more I found it to be rewarding. 
Cool. No, I just love that. The fact that you were sort of honest with yourself about where your skill set lies. And sometimes for a lot of people to get you know more money or the promotion, you get into these managerial roles and actually you forget about what you enjoy doing before. Um, and actually, uh, Professor Sarah Garfinkel told me in her interview, she she loves doing experiments. And then obviously, the higher you, you go, the less of that you do. So now moving on to your uh, book, The Expectation Effect, I um, really enjoyed reading it. So uh, what's it about? And what inspired you to, to write it? So The Expectation Effect is about um, the ways that we create self-fulfilling prophecies from our beliefs. And so our beliefs can shape our outcomes through, um, you know, changes to our perception, changes to our behaviour and changes to our physiology. Actually, this can happen in all areas of life. The book goes from discussing the placebo effect in medicine and the ways that scientists are now trying to learn how to harness the placebo effect without deception. So without giving people that kind of sham treatment, but actually just raising their expectations in a non-deceptive way. And often the way to do that is actually just to educate people and to explain to them and to give them the reasons why they're receiving the treatment and to understand, you know, what benefits it will bring. But then, you know, I go on to look at kind of health and fitness, you know, how it can shape our reactions to a workout, our reactions to a new diet, uh, the ways we cope with sleep loss, um, the ways we cope with stress, um, right even, you know, down to how we age. So there's a lot of good research suggesting that how we view ageing, if we see it as being this uh, kind of inevitable decline and, you know, descent into disability, or whether we see um, older age as a time of opportunity and greater wisdom and, you know, new ways of embracing life, um, that can actually influence how long you live. So I, I guess it started out just as a science reporter, you know, I'd often covered the placebo effect. Um, but actually, just then, the more I dug into this, and the more I gathered, um, the more I realised that there was a really big story to tell. Like, I really saw the science as having reached this kind of tipping point. And, you know, the placebo effect might be well known, but for most people, their knowledge ends there. Whereas I felt there were all of these other, you know, hugely important outcomes that people needed to know about. And actually, the the nocebo effect, can you talk a bit bit about that? Because I don't think probably our listeners would have ever come across that. No, exactly. So that's very prevalent again. So it's the opposite of the placebo effect. The nocebo effect is when our expectations of becoming ill can actually make us ill. A big example of this is in drug side effects. So it's true that lots of, you know, pills or antidepressants might actually cause you to get some side effects. But actually, the clinical trials showed that um, even people taking the placebo pill, when you're trying to compare the the drug with a placebo, even those taking this sham treatment also start to develop a lot of those side effects like headaches, which suggest that expectations are involved. And it's almost like the doctor's warnings of the possible side effects are actually creating those symptoms through this placebo effect. Um, there's research showing that, you know, that's not just subjective, it's also can objectively be traced to things like changes in the vasculature of the brain, you know, whether the blood vessels are dilated or constricted. Um, so, you know, it's not imagined pain, it's very real pain. And um, and one of the big, you know, one of the things that really pushed me along in this path to writing the book was when I experienced a nocebo effect for myself, and it was actually these headaches coming from 
placebo pills. You know, my doctor had told me that this was a potential side effect of the pills I was taking. And then I did develop those headaches. And I was actually only researching and understanding the nocebo effect. It was only through that knowledge that I began to realize that maybe, maybe it was my anxiety about getting the headaches that was actually driving those headaches. And so um, opening my mind to that possibility and realizing that they might not be inevitable, that in itself then helped me to kind of overcome that pain and it never returned. So that was a really powerful demonstration for me of the ways that expectations can shape outcomes. And that really then pushed me to look into all of these other ways that our expectations and beliefs are shaping our lives. But I like that point you made about sort of perception, because I think the world, we're looking at it through our lens, and we have a slight bias or perception of, of the of the way the world that it is. Now, you know, say you know, our interaction, you know, if, if I had thought, oh, you know, there's no point reaching out to David, he's going to be too busy. Whereas I think if you can say to yourself, look, just try, you never know, don't be attached to the outcome. And I think sometimes a lot of people get so attached to the failure, they think, well, I'm not not even going to try. I think in our culture, almost people have reacted so strongly to this idea of like positive thinking, that they see, you know, positive thinking as being inherently irrational and being more pessimistic is kind of showing that you're smarter than the average person because you're not going to be fooled. You're so sceptical that you're always going to see the worst and you're defending yourself against disappointment. But I don't I don't see it that way um, because like you said, actually, those negative expectations can then create their own self-fulfilling prophecies that are, you know, damaging your chances of, you know, success or happiness, you know, in all, all these different areas. So yeah, I very much try to fight against that. Um, I do also think, you know, kind of rosy-eyed, like Pollyanna-ish kind of positive thinking isn't very helpful either. You know, if I'm going to the gym and I tell myself that, you know, this time I'm going to, you know, run as fast as an Olympic, you know, an Olympic sprinter, that's not going to, that's not, I'm not going to, you know, perform as well as that person. And I'm only going to then be disappointed. And, that could actually then make me feel more of a failure uh, if you always have this kind of high standard that you're never meeting. So what I'm really asking people to do in all of these different examples is to try to just look at situations as objectively as possible and to see, you know, that often it is a case of a half, uh, you know, glass half full, half empty, um, but not to forget, you know, what positives there are, or even to see how some of the discomfort that we might be feeling in some situations can actually, you know, as as uh, difficult as it might be, can actually serve a purpose. So we see that in with things like the side effects of different treatments, that actually if you tell people that those side effects that you're feeling, you know, might actually be a sign that the, you know, treatment is working, that that can then actually help people to feel less distress and even can enhance the treatment itself. So that's the kind of reframing I'm asking. I'm not asking people to believe the impossible, but just to, you know, to start like um, bringing themselves to this sweet midpoint. If you're making these small incremental improvements, and you can see that, you know, am I, you know, lifting heavier weights? Can I run for longer? Uh, And things like, you know, the burn you feel after a, a gym session, that's actually not a bad thing in a way. So I think, you know, try and look at the small positive things rather than yeah just being put off by them yeah so i i I love what you're saying um and and also this this point you made in the book about the brain being a prediction machine and i love this quote by moshe bar he says we see what we predict rather than what's out there 
Can you maybe give it a little bit of background about that and how the brain predicts these scenarios? Yeah, I mean, so that's the other thing that I find compelling about, you know, the science of the expectation effect is it's got this huge, you know, theoretical kind of bedrock behind it. And that is that the brain evolved to be this prediction machine, which is that it's always simulating the world around it and trying to kind of guess what's going to happen next. Now, that's really important for perception, first of all, because the data hitting, you know, coming from our retinas or from our ears is often quite impoverished. We might think that we can see, you know, very clearly what's out there, but actually it's taken a lot of brain processing to work out, you know, where one object begins and another ends, to kind of see through, you know, foggy glass, all of this. But the brain is using its expectations from the kind of context from its previous experiences um, to kind of tidy that up through creating these simulations. Now, that's really useful in itself, but also, you know, these simulations, then it's also helping to prepare the body for the challenges that it might face. And so that's where the physiological changes come in. So it might raise or lower your blood pressure. It might, um, you know, release certain hormones that are going to help you to kind of burn energy more quickly. It might change the activities of your digestive system. You know, all of these uh, changes can occur as a result of your brain's predictions. We're experiencing the expectation effect all the time. It's just whether we're aware of it and whether we can actually then try to refine our expectations to make sure that they are kind of optimum and that we're not being needlessly held back by overly negative expectations. So, so in a way, you can almost try and retrain your brain and say, if I look at the world, and, and not in a sort of a delusionally positive way, but I say there are opportunities. So say if I go to a like a drinks event and I say, okay, hopefully today they'll I'll meet somebody and maybe they may be a podcast guest or I might have a nice conversation rather than saying I'm going to that same event and nobody's going to like me, they'll hate me. If you can sort of reframe um, your thinking, then maybe your brain can start building up positive patterns rather than or positive simulations. Is, is that broadly correct, David? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's one example of it. And, you know, I think that's very true that if you – you know, I always think like when we feel nervous about a social event, um, part of the thing that the prediction machine is going to do is it's going to focus on if it feels that it's going to, you know, have a, a social threat, like if it thinks it's going to be isolated, then, and you know, there's going to be kind of um, antagonistic people around, it's actually going to be on the lookout for those people because you want to identify the social threat early, early on. Bearing that in mind, um, you know, if you do think that you're maybe having this kind of um, negative expectation of what's going to happen, I find it can be useful just to kind of actually try to, you know, make sure that you also try to notice the signs of people being friendly towards you, you know, little acts of kindness, you know, smiles across the room, just to kind of recognise that um, that actually, like, it's not as scary as you thought it was going to be. So that's absolutely, you know, one way for us to do it. But I think it can be applied in you know, all kinds of situations. And you mentioned, you know, working out. And that's really one of the kind of my favourite examples of the expectation effect and reframing, because um, I think we can all grow up, I certainly did, not really having a great experience of PE at school. You know, I don't think exercise is taught in a very compelling way in British schools, or it wasn't when I was at school. Um, and, you know, I was kind of quite 
you know, young from, I was the youngest in my year, but shorter. So I was always last in the race and I always felt like I was worse than other people. And so I carried this kind of baggage thinking that I was kind of just not cut out for exercise. But then researching the book, I realized that actually, you know, I won't ever be an Olympic athlete, but also that that it just doesn't make sense. I've got no disabilities that would prevent me from benefiting from exercise and they should prevent me from enjoying exercise. So I tried to change that mindset. And actually the research shows that when you do change that mindset, you know, it can change your subjective perceptions of exercise, but also objectively what's going on. There was a great study from Stanford University that had given people sham feedback from a genetic test. And they found that actually telling people they had a good gene for exercise actually, you know, increased their stamina and, you know, the it made the exercise feel easier, but it also changed things like the gas exchange within the lungs, which became more efficient. So I knew that that was going to be powerful. And certainly, you know, from my anecdotal experience, that really helped. And then secondly, like you said, it's all about how do you frame what you're experiencing. Now, you know, when you're on the treadmill and you feel kind of out of breath, you know, your heart is racing, your limbs feel heavy. Now that can, you know, there's no denying that there is a certain level of discomfort there. But actually, you can still frame it as a positive thing, because it is, it's like you're pushing your body to its maximum capacity in that moment. And that's the only way really to get stronger. And just recognizing that fact that, you know, is actually a positive sign of like, the improvement that you're making. The research shows that that can be very powerful too. And it can actually do things like trigger the release of opioids into your blood, which give you that sense of euphoria and actually reduce some of the discomfort. So, you know, in all of these ways, we can change, just change like our views, like adding a different lens to what we're seeing. It's not, we're not lying to ourselves, but we're just um, changing our interpretation. And that's powerful enough in itself to bring about positive outcomes. And then with something like exercise, you know, like you said, it's the incremental changes. It's like, if you feel better and do better, even by a little bit on one gym session, you're more likely to come back for the next one. And over time, you know, what might not have been that miraculous change to make you an Olympic athlete, you might still see like a really noticeable improvement in your health. And that's, you know, what's gonna help you to live longer later in life. Yeah, and I, and I love this the whole idea of the the reframing and say especially reframing stress and using that in a positive way. Because say you're going uh, for a job interview or about to give a big presentation, I, I would say most of us feel quite stressed out, and I think that's partly due to the enormity of the. You know, if if it goes well, then you either have a new job or you uh, have got a new client, and I think almost at that point, if you recognize that stress in a positive way and try and reframe it. And I think you've talked about this in your book. Um, would you like to sort of expand on that, David? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is another kind of example of the expectation effect that I personally found really useful. In our culture, there's this assumption that all stress is bad and all anxiety is bad. And that, um, you know, you're told by your parents and your teachers and, you know, in uh, the media that actually to perform well, you should try to be cool and calm and collected. But actually, if you're feeling anxious, consciously trying to suppress the feeling isn't really possible. And the research shows that actually it rebounds. You actually feel worse because, you know, the more you fail to do it, the, you kind of creates this uh, spiral of panic. So a much better way of dealing with stress and anxiety is to start asking yourself, like, why did we evolve to have the uh, stress response? Like, why, if I'm in front of a group of people, 
did I evolve to start having that racing heart? And, you know, why do my limbs feel a bit shaky? And the answer is that actually these are just all signs of physiological changes that were meant to improve performance. Your heart is racing because it's pumping lots of oxygenated blood around the body and especially to your brain. It's powering your thinking. And those hormones that might make you feel like kind of jangly, um, you know, cortisol actually at kind of reasonable levels um, in the short term, is all it's doing is helping you to feel more alert. And I don't think anyone wants to go into an interview or an exam or, you know, give a speech where they're feeling, you know, like so kind of zoned out and peaceful that they're not really paying attention to the audience. So this is, these are the benefits of anxiety and stress in the short term. And what the researchers have found is actually just educating people about that. Can, it can help to improve their performance in whatever they're doing. So, you know, whether it's an important sports match or an interview or, you know, a negotiation, public speaking, you know, all of these things in the exam, it can actually help the performance. They're using the stress or the, the anxiety as a resource. But also, I think what's equally important is it seems to change the way that people respond after the stressful event. And if you have been working yourself up into that kind of, um, well, down through that negative spiral, thinking that your, your stress and your anxiety is damaging, then it takes you a lot longer to recover from that um, stressful event afterwards. So your body is still on this kind of physiological high alert, you know, your heart is still struggling to pump the blood around your body, like you're still kind of waiting for like some kind of danger to to come out and, and you know, threaten you. But if you saw that stress as being, you know, more useful, more adaptive, even if you acknowledge that, you know, it wasn't especially pleasant to go through it, but if you saw that your anxiety was at least had some kind of benefit, that actually helps your body to return to to its normal kind of relaxed state much more quickly. And so that is what will then help you to um, avoid some of the long-term effects of stress. If you're going through kind of daily or weekly stressful activities, but you're recovering more quickly so you can make the most of your downtime, that protects you from things like burnout. And, you know, according to one study, it could even protect you against the heightened risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so it's really powerful. But again, it's all about doing these kind of mindset exercises, you know, time after time and just like uh, enjoying the incremental benefits. No, I just love that. And and it's almost like learning to love the stress and love that feeling of uncomfortableness. You know, say before this interview, I, I always feel slightly anxious before you know, any podcast. I w- want to actually have that feeling and work with it because then, you know, I'll feel in a sort of a higher state of alertness mm-hmm. and hopefully I'll ask sensible questions and we'll have a good back and forth. Uh, and so it's almost like learning to like it and enjoy it and ride with it may surf with it rather than fight against it is that sort of right right David yeah that's exactly it and I think also you know just recognizing that you're feeling the anxiety or stress for a, a reason and it's like it's because this event that's coming up is important to you so just kind of recognizing that there's also partly your choice so what I'm not saying is that you know we should also lean into like um grief or like you know that terrible stress that you might have if someone that you love is ill or you know your own you know if your own disability is making your life um really difficult to to cope with and you know I'm not saying that we should see all stress as being good um but actually a lot of these stresses that I'm talking about taking an exam or going to 
you know, having an important tennis match or to giving a talk or doing a podcast, you know, these are the things that actually we want to do for our personal fulfillment. And it's worth just recognising that actually we had some kind of autonomy there and that, you know, what we're feeling is anxiety. But actually, if we eliminated all of those anxieties from our lives, would it actually be better? And for me, like I came to the conclusion that it wouldn't be, you know, public speaking really used to kind of frighten me um, before I wrote The Expectation Effect. Um, but then I realised that, you know, I'd written this book and I wanted to communicate it to other people. So there was a real, it was fitting with my goals, you know, these tasks that I found stressful. Um, and actually then I realised, you know, it makes my life more interesting and exciting to be doing this. It's like, it's actually something that I can use for my personal growth. And so that's really the kind of mindset change. I'm saying that we you know, we can all try to cultivate. I'm certainly not saying that we should, you know, pile on the stress as much as possible. But when we're recognising that a stressful event is actually meaningful and important to us and, you know, essential for our kind of self-actualization, then I think maybe, you know, we can try to lean into it a bit and recognise it almost as a form of excitement in our life. And and almost sort of doing it in a sort of forum where, there's not a lot at stake. So say with public speaking, you could do something like Toastmasters where, you know, you've got a nice bunch of people, everybody's quite nervous about public speaking and you're in a nice environment. Or say if you're going for an interview, you could do a, a mock run through with a friend just to get into the sort of the habit of, you know, answering questions. So I think there are always ways of doing stressful things in a less stressful way and almost like an athlete preparing yourself for that. Uh, but but actually talking about sport, you you also mentioned in your book this idea of visualization and the the importance of that. Um and I was just thinking, um, you know, so taking it out of the sport context, maybe, you know, um in work scenarios, like before an interview or before um you know a presentation or before giving a speech. Um, do you think that that could apply to those scenarios that you almost run through it in your mind or believe that, say, the speech is going well or the interview is going well? I mean, what, what do you think, David? Yeah, I do think that's really useful. I also think, you know, we should maybe avoid doing that too much because actually if you over-rehearse, I think then if you get some kind of unexpected element, it can that can throw you off course, which is why I think your suggestion of also kind of rehearsing in front of you know, friends and family or colleagues or, you know, that can also be useful because you get a bit more of that unpredictability, which is what you want to kind of um, uh, also kind of inoculate inoculate yourself against. More importantly is that changing your stress mindset actually isn't going to solve everything if you're, un if you're underprepared. And I think that's another thing where mindset research is a bit kind of misunderstood sometimes is that people think, you know, I'm claiming that this is the only thing you have to do. Well, no, if you want to get fit, like, I'm sorry, like you have to go to the gym <laughs> as well as, but then you can use your mindset, you know, you can develop the positive mindset to make that experience more pleasure, uh, pleasurable, to get more out of it and to kind of see faster progress. Similarly, you know, I think if you've got public speaking or an exam, you know, or an interview, like actually, you still have to prepare for it. And then I think, remind yourself of how much preparation you've done. I think that's really important because um, when you're experiencing the stress response, your brain is trying to essentially weigh up its kind of resources against its uh, the demands of this situation. And I think what can sometimes happen is that we, you know, 
reach the exam hall or the podium and we suddenly feel like we forget how much preparation we've done. And so it suddenly seems to the brain like we've got a lot more demands than resources. And that can then push you into a more extreme stress response. Whereas actually just reminding yourself that you've you know, done as much as you reasonably could do, that can also be helpful to kind of mute the response. And then with the remaining stress that you feel, if you can tell yourself, well, actually, that is what's important to make this to make the most of this opportunity, then I think that's the kind of winning combination, really. So, so, so are you saying that sometimes when you get into these stressful environments that your brain is almost telling you you haven't done enough preparation, uh, but yeah. you have to remind yourself that you have? Is, is that what you're saying, David? That's it. I think that we can sometimes just forget how much we've done. But actually, it's useful to just consciously think of that and remind yourself of that, while also then reframing your opinions of this stress itself. So not seeing it as a sign of um, imminent failure, but seeing it as as another resource, as another kind of physiological change that can actually be beneficial to you. No, and I just love that point you make, because I think, you know, I, I've come across, and I'm sure you have in life, that there are so many people who are, you know, amazingly good at say, you know, their their jobs or they're really, um, you know, they're really skilled at certain things, but they're not getting the recognition that they deserve, uh, but they've done all this work and they've done all this preparation. And I think sometimes in a way it's that mindset, which is stopping them. Um, they don't believe the, either imposter syndrome. They don't believe they're good enough. Maybe they haven't been pushing enough at work. Um, so I think, you know, m- mindset will obviously help you, you know, when you're prepared and you've done all the background work. So clearly, you know, you can't write a book without having done all the research. It's right. just going to be nonsensical. But if you've done all the research and you've done all the preparation, then you can write the book. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, mindset is helpful, but it's not it's only part of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is how I see it. And it's like mindset like might not perform miracles in that it's like it's not going to immediately transform you into like an amazing world class athlete. And it's not immediately going to turn me into someone who's going to sell out arenas to come and listen to me speak. But that's also not that doesn't mean that like, I can't benefit from it. And that actually, it's not going to transform an experience from being, you know, quite painful to being more enjoyable, more successful, to help me to actually communicate my message better to the people that I want to. And so actually, just having those realistic expectations of what it can achieve, well, we should be really embracing that, you know, even, you know, relatively small uh, achievements are actually meaningful if you do them day after day after day. And it's funny you should say that, David, because the first time I was ever on a podcast, I was a guest. One of my friends, somebody had dropped out, one of his guests, and he said, Harsha, can you come along and be a financial expert? Yeah. I said, yeah, fine, I'll come along. And then on the tube journey there, I was thinking, like, why have I committed myself to doing this? And you're thinking, this is a nightmare. And then I go along and it's not like two of his mates. It's some guy who's like a half a billionaire investor and some other guy who's a CEO of a company. I'm thinking, like, what do I have to say? But luckily, I'd prepared something. And once I said that, you know, it was much easier. And I think it's just about trying to get past your fears and you know, try and push yourself to do these things. Obviously not in a situation where it's life or death or you're going to lose your job, but it's almost like managing that risk. That's what I feel like it's often about. Yeah, managing risk and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, the way I see it as being like a virtuous cycle is that you change your, you push yourself 
outside of your comfort zone, but not, you know, like you said, not into a situation where uh, the risks are so great, you know, it's going to be catastrophic. Um, so you put yourself in that kind of sweet spot where you are challenging yourself and you apply, you know, the reframing exercises, you change your mindset and then, you know, you you should find that it does help. And then that becomes self-reinforcing. You've got proof now that it is possible that, you know, by changing your mindset, in my case, by changing my mindset, that I was a bit better at public speaking than I thought I could be. And so then I go to the next talk and I do the same again and I improve a bit more. And then it just, you know, carries on from there in this virtuous cycle where you're providing your brain this prediction machine with evidence that actually, you know, in this case, that the threat of the, you know, of embarrassment coming from the public speaking was much less than I had anticipated and that my abilities were bigger than I had um, hoped they would be. And that then, you know, over time, it, you know, went from being this something that I would dread to being something that I quite look forward to. Um, and that's, you know, what I think we should be looking for. And we're using that you know, change of the stress mindset as the tool to enable that to occur. Because if I didn't have that mindset tool, what could have happened is that even when I pushed myself out of my comfort zone, even a little bit, that, you know, this nerve still got the better of me and that I found it was actually much, you know, harder than I'd, I'd thought. And then that would have descended. So, you know, I see mindset as being crucial for this, but I think also it is a, a process of slowly pushing yourself against your comfort zone and, and, you know, expanding it and just discovering what you are capable of doing. And often, you know, we have a lot more potential than we think we do. Yeah. And I, I like that point about evidence, because I think that's so important for people that actually looking at what they have done, you've written two books, which are very successful. And, you know, that's clear evidence that, you know, one, you've got a contract with a publisher, which is not easy. People have actually paid you to to, to write something. And then secondly, uh, it's out there and you've got validation from these awards. And I'm not saying that people should create content purely for validation. But I think it's that idea of social proof that, you know, you've done something well. I mean, say with the podcast, you know, I've had great guests like David Robson on there. And then, you know, you look at, say, Apple Podcasts, your appearance of charts. So I think it's not about the validation, but it clearly does show evidence that you're going in the right direction. So, yeah, I just love that point. And I think if people focused, and not in a megalomaniacal way, but actually said, look, I've done this thing well, I've passed these exams, I've been promoted to a manager or senior manager, whatever it is. And even small wins, like say your boss says, you know, good job or well done or a client. I think that's quite important, isn't it, uh, Dave? Mm, Yeah, no, it really is. And I think we live in a culture where self-criticism is often like the pessimism that I described, is often considered to be almost a sign of being, I don't know, a diligent person, like an effective person. Uh, We feel embarrassed, I think, about showing ourselves kind of compassion or accepting praise and praising ourselves. We see that as a kind of sign of, like you said, uh, being a megalomaniac, or we see it as a sign of self-indulgence or weakness or, and you know, it shouldn't be like that, actually. Like, it's totally fine to celebrate your successes. You don't have to celebrate them, like, you know, at the top of your voice so that everyone can hear in every conversation that you have. But like, I think personally, it's, you know, healthy and right that you feel proud for your achievements and that that actually helps you to achieve more because it makes you feel empowered. And, you know, it's all to me about moderation again, you know, in much the same way I'm saying we shouldn't have 
you know, unrealistically optimistic expectations, like, you know, wishful thinking, magical thinking. I don't think that we should have, like, overconfidence where we're constantly, like, bigging ourselves up. But I think we can reach that sweet point where we're not always criticising ourselves and where we are forgiving of our mistakes and also trying to learn from them and also recognising our successes. I love also that chapter where you talked about you know, limitless willpower and this discussion about trying to reduce non-essential decisions, because I do think that we have more willpower than, than we realize, but also it try and uh, use you know, the brain does almost have a finite amount of processing power. Um, so don't waste it on, you know, what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to wear today? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think, David? Well, so this idea that the brain has this kind of very limited resource, so that has been, you know, had been the dogma for maybe a decade, maybe two. That's ego depletion theory. Um, Ego is a bit like Jiminy Cricket in, you know, Freud's idea of like um, the organisation of the brain, of the psyche, and, you know, the ego is kind of reining in our worst impulses and kind of controlling it so that we can meet our higher kind of goals and values. Um, And the idea was that this little figure, the ego, gets tired over time. And, you know, if you move away from metaphor to kind of real physiology, the idea was that maybe it's feeding on glucose. And, you know, after like a difficult day where you've been resisting temptations all the time and you've been forcing yourself to concentrate, well, it's just running out of blood sugar so that then it needs to, either needs to kind of replenish itself or it's going to find it much harder to maintain your willpower. Um, but the new research says, you know, basically, we've misunderstood that. And actually, ego depletion is itself a result of mindset. That actually people who believe they're going to experience ego depletion, they believe that their willpower is limited, well, they're more likely to give in to temptation, they're less likely to be able to meet their goals, because they, you know, it's always running out. Whereas people who see their willpower as being this kind of never ending resource in that they see that, you know, once you exert your willpower, it becomes self-perpetuating. People with those beliefs actually don't really seem to experience ego depletion. And actually, you can see that in laboratory experiments, but far more convincingly for me is that you also see it in real life, you know, people with this um, non-limited view of willpower, they do tend to do better in exams at university, for example, but also while they're studying, they're also working out and eating healthily. And, you know, they're not sacrificing like all of those other things uh, purely to kind of have their high achieve, high academic achievement. They're actually just maintaining willpower in all the different areas of their lives. So it's not, doesn't seem to be being depleted in the way that we might have expected previously. So I think that's, you know, really useful for us to know. And we've probably experienced in our lives both kinds of mindsets you know, we might have found a time when, you know, like the cookie jar was just too temptingly close for us to be able to resist it. We might have also found a time when actually, we were kind of really getting in the zone with something. And the more we realised that, you know, we were succeeding, the easier it became. So it might just be that you've got a really difficult work task that actually, once your head's down, the time seems to fly, and you don't even realise it. There, your willpower is not being depleted in the way that we might have expected. Um, so we have a you know mishmash of experiences, but some people do predominantly have one mindset or the other. And I think if we can shift in those situations where we don't have the non-limited mindset, if we can try to remind ourselves of the fact that it is potentially non-limited our mindset, then that can just be really helpful to help us to reach our goals and to to you know resist temptation and to get fit or to kind of 
persevere with work or, you know, all of these things. So it's, you know, incredibly powerful research and it really is just a way of rethinking our behaviours. And I think sometimes if you can look at the work, say say if you're doing a difficult task and it's part of a bigger picture and look at your bigger goals, your bigger values and say, look, I I need to do this, you know, say prepare a pitch deck so I can go out and pitch to potential investors. Preparing the PowerPoint slides is pretty boring, but actually the end result of uh, pitching it to investors and getting money in, that's actually quite powerful. Um, And say editing a podcast is not much fun. But what you're thinking is I'm trying to create something almost like a piece of art in a very low level way. And if I don't concentrate on the editing and making everything sound good, then I'm not going to be able to, you know, know, people aren't going to like it. So I think if you can attach like a higher purpose to even mundane tasks, then I think that's like training in the gym to uh, being healthier or whatever it is. Then it's sort of part of a a bigger picture. I mean, what what do you think, David? Yeah, I mean, the research is quite clear on this as well. And that when we kind of feel autonomy for what we're doing, we, you know, naturally kind of shift mindset to the more non-limited kind of model. Like you can give people questionnaires and if they feel that they've got ownership over what they're doing, they're more likely to believe that their capacity to do it will be kind of self-perpetuating in this way um, compared to if your boss is just telling you do this meaningful task without without you seeing it being connected to any of your goals if it just feels totally without merit to you. You know, so I think having that ownership and autonomy and recognizing the values of it of what we're doing is really important for having this mindset and i also just think trying to recognize the times when you have shown a non-limited mindset um can be very beneficial again it's a bit like when i was saying celebrating our successes well this is just you know doing that in one specific circumstance so if i'm doing these maths problems it's just too hard for me it's tiring i'm gonna have to have lots of breaks you know like i can't keep going you know for the full working day and then i might have done that well then going away and reading you know like a difficult 19th century novel and not recognizing that actually that is taking just as much mental effort as the maths problems so actually just reminding yourself that you know when you stayed up all night reading a book well that is as a sign of you showing like this kind of non-limited willpower. And then by reminding yourself of that, uh, it seems to be that then that will change your your mindset and then that will make it easier, even in those situations where maybe, you know, you do feel naturally less motivated. So doing that boring task at work, or for me, if I'm struggling with writer's block, that will encourage me to just sit with it and to realise that sometimes the breakthrough can happen if I do actually sit there with it. Um, So that's what I think we should be doing again, is just trying to recognise all those times when we actually show these amazing qualities and then reminding ourselves of that to empower ourselves when things do get a bit tough. Sometimes, as you're saying, you have to sit with the problem, look at it in different ways, maybe take a few minutes, break but come back to it uh, because i think yeah just giving up is it's just going to be as hard the next time you get to it so i think sitting with something thinking about it um, maybe reframing it yeah the inspiration will come but it's only by putting in the hard yards that that comes to you exactly and the same goes for reframing the frustration that you're feeling because actually you know for the psychology of learning and creativity frustration is actually a useful emotion. It's like, it is the feeling of learning and of 
being creative. If you're not feeling a certain level of frustration, you're probably not actually pushing your brain as hard as it can go. It's the equivalent of the racing heart and the uh, heavy limbs when you're working out. It's a positive sign that you're exercising your brain. And yet often I think we see it as a sign that we're failing in much the same way that at the gym we might misread those feelings of fatigue as being a sign that we're inherently unfit. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, we should recognise that actually with that frustration is what happens just before you reach that breakthrough. The research shows that just reframing the feeling in that way can be very helpful. The insights don't come sometimes when you're really hard at work. They come after you put all the work in and then you're offline, you're going for a walk or you're having a shower or just sitting. That's when the, yeah. the genius and magic happens. Um, Do you think so, though? Exactly. And it's like, I'm not saying that we should be these kinds of workaholics who just sit kind of fruitlessly in a state of frustration without ever giving ourselves a break or a change of scenery or whatever, because actually it's very natural to me that sometimes you do need like a, a period of incubation to kind of come back to it afresh with a new, you know, a fresh pair of eyes, a new way of looking at the problems that you're facing, or just a new way of um, coming back with fresh uh, motivation to do the the kind of learning that you're doing or, or, you know, whatever task it is. But I think the problem is if you have the idea of having totally limited uh, resources, that you're always stopping at the merest sign of, like, difficulty. And that's why you just don't make any progress. You're just constantly facing these barriers. And I think just increasing our tolerance of what we can can put up with when we're trying to strive towards our goals. I think that's what's really important here. And that's what these changes in mindset are helping you to do. Fantastic. Yeah, I sometimes when I'm struggling, I, I watch a few YouTube videos and, you know, just some silly stuff, maybe Roger Federer's greatest forehands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> inspire me. Well, that's what I think, you know, doing something fun is in itself like a, a good use of your time sometimes, especially if the frustration is getting to the point where it's making you feel a bit miserable. But also, you know, um, with my writing, it's like if I'm really hitting a block, I find there are still other things that I can be doing that are useful and productive. And then I can return to it later on. You know, there might be, if I'm struggling with one piece, I might start the research on another one or start, you know, contacting researchers. Or It's not like I've just given up and I'm just like spending all my time on Facebook, like waiting for inspiration to come through. It's just a case of like using my time, you know, in the most productive way possible. Yeah, I, I would have thought you'd be managing your social media, David. Yeah. <laughs> Replying, sending out more tweets and all that sort of stuff. I'll be honest, social media was a problem for me in the past. Like I did spend far too much time. And you know, whatever makes people happy. But for me, I would come away and it did feel like eating junk food or something. Like um, which also nothing wrong with eating junk food in moderation. But for me, it began to feel like it wasn't nutritious and it wasn't a good use of my time. And it took ages for me to break that. But this research on, you know, willpower definitely helped me with that because it stopped me kind of feeling this kind of that it was just inevitable that I would have to spend this time, you know, wasted time to kind of recharge myself is it made me realize that actually that wasn't the case that like I could have down periods where I was doing something intellectually stimulating and satisfying still you know away from work but it didn't have to be kind of this kind of zombified state of just like endless scrolling 
But now that you're a successful author, isn't that part of your job? Social media, <laughs> you've got to get out there and like, you know, uh, interact with your followers and what have you. Yeah, no, and I do try to interact with like my own followers, but I think it's more, I'm, you know, I'm not like um, endlessly checking the feeds and stuff. And, you know, uh, I think like if I can just parcel it out into like a few, you know, minutes in the morning and afternoon to respond to people to promote, you know, a new podcast or article or whatever. Well, that's one thing. But I think I don't need to get dragged into like every pylon that's, you know, occurring on social media or every kind of celebrity controversy or whatever. Like a lot of this stuff that I can live a very satisfied life not knowing about. I know, totally. So, um, David, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time. Thank you so much for sharing all your sort of wonderful thoughts with our, our listeners and great insights. Uh, so going forward, how can people get in touch with you? Obviously, I think you've got your, your website, you're on various social media things. Do you just want to share that with the, the listeners? Yeah, totally. So having, you know, kind of ranted about social media, <laughs> like, I, you know, I do very much like hearing from people who want to have an interesting conversation. That's a good use of my time. So, on Twitter, I'm D underscore A underscore Robson. You can search for me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, David A. Robson on Instagram. And my website is davidrobson.me. So yeah, absolutely. Like I'd love to hear from people. You know, you can find out more about my book um, on those channels. And yeah, you know, I hope people found it useful kind of just getting this taster of what the expectation effect can actually achieve. I would also say you've got a lot of writing on the BBC website as well, which is really, you know, some really fascinating articles there. Um, and I think the, the one thing about hearing from your followers is you know, I, I also find is that you're trying to get feedback. You know, is this helpful? Is it not helpful? Can I be steered in, a, in a, another direction? So, you know, I think having almost like real time information is, is, is really helpful. And, and then one final thing I'd like to offer my guests is there, is there anybody particularly you'd like to give a shout out to who's, helped you in your life or your career or just anybody in general? Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, so there's my partner, Robert, um, mm. my parents, you know, my uh, two of my best friends like Natasha and um, Emma and their husbands, you know, have been really important for me. Um, could I also just give a shout out to some of my colleagues who have forthcoming yeah, books? Go um, ahead, yeah. Cool. Get wild. Yeah, so Sally Ady's new book is coming out on the 2nd of February in a few days um, cool. when this was recorded. It's called We Are Electric, and it looks at um, how electricity in the body is shaping all kinds of processes. So, you know, from the development of the fetus in the womb to wound healing to the development of cancer is really the new frontier of medicine. One of my other friends, Richard Fisher, has just written a book that's coming out in March called The Long View, that's looking at um, all the ways that we can think more wisely about humanity's future. So Dave, uh, thanks so much once again for your time. Really, you know, love, love the book, love the work that you're doing. Um, I think you, sh you should write a novel. Um, <laughs> thank you I'll let you know if I do yeah I love sci-fi so I'll, I'll yeah. definitely buy yeah. it you know yeah. but um yeah no thank thanks so much for your time David and uh have a great rest of the day thank Take you care. you too it's been a pleasure thanks so much bye-bye thank you so much for listening and staying to the end that was such a fun interview if you'd like to listen to more episodes please subscribe to the podcast which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free if you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. 
Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.